This is East Screen, West Screen with Paul and Kevin, where if films were food, they'd be full of it. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to East Screen, West Screen. This is the program where we talk about films from Hong Kong to Hollywood and many things in between. This is episode 27 for Wednesday, May 19th, 2010. I'm Paul Fox, and joining me from a galaxy far, far away is the man whose midichlorians know no limit, Mr. Kevin Ma. Kevin, how you doing? Hi, Paul. How's it going? Good. Uh, good. I hope you're living longer and prosperer. Yeah, living living long and prospering. I'm trying to. Uh, sorry for the little bit of the geeky intro, but uh, George Lucas's birthday was a few days ago, so I thought I'd throw in a little bit of a theme. Kevin, you a Star Wars fan? Oh yeah, I'm a great Star Wars fan. I mean, honestly, the whole Star Trek that that whole line just used as the only Star Trek line. No. Yeah. It, it, to me, it's like Star Trek. It's, it's like the boring people of Star Wars. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, we're here to talk about other things besides uh, Star Wars and Mr. Lucas. So let's get into some of our East Screen news for this week. Um, so this first news article uh, is a little bit has a little bit of uh, news to do with Donnie and the Monkey King. Is that correct, Kevin? That's right. This is what a little segment I like to call This Week in Donnie. Um, apparently a little less crazy than George Lucas is director Soy Chang, who last directed Accident for Milky Way, Johnny Coe's company. Um, he's going to be doing an IMAX 3D film, and not only an IMAX 3D film, but an IMAX 3D film about the Monkey King. And um, Donnie, uh, as in of the Yang clan, will be starring as the Monkey King, uh, apparently in a story that's more about his time in the heavens, not the um, journey to the west part of the story. And it will have a lot of mystical creatures and surely special effects. And um, according to today's newspaper, um, Chiron Fan and Louis Kuhav have, have signed on. So uh, what do you think, Paul? Uh, as crazy as a, as a Star Wars sitcom? Well, I'm, I'm a big fan of Monk, the Monkey King, and... Um, I, I don't really think they've actually done a sort of an accurate retelling. I mean, we've gotten, we've gotten the Stephen Chow parodies, um, China, the, you know, the two Chinese Odyssey films, uh, back in the nineties. Um, and there've been a couple television series. I think, uh, Dickie Chung, for example, did, uh, two television series based on, uh, the Monkey King, but I'd really like, I, I think I had heard a rumor that. Uh, Soy Hark was in pre-production at one point on a Monkey King film, and I nothing ever came of it. So I'd be really excited to see somebody sort of do a a serious, you know, t retake uh, on the the series, sort of like what was done in the ones that were released under the Celestial Shaw Brothers titles. Um, I really love those, but they do look a bit dated in in terms of the sets and the costumes. So, you know, if they can get the money behind this and really sort of put it out there, IMAX 3D or not, I'd, I'd be happy to see it. And even more so because it's sort of taking place during the, what I guess some people would consider the, the prequel or the, the earlier parts, the first book, if you will, um, because it is a journey to the West. There's actually three books, and that first book is really focusing on Monkey and sort of being a troublemaker and how he gets his powers and and becomes immortal and tricks a lot of the deities in heaven and of the whole series that's sort of my favorite part so 
I'd be excited to see it. Now, having Donnie as the Monkey King, I don't know. Um, he could be good uh, or he could just be Donnie. Uh, I think it's really going to depend a lot on what they do in terms of how they approach the makeup or, you know, if they approach it like from sort of an avatar perspective where they have Donnie sort of as this motion captured um, CGI character, that could be really interesting. Um, but uh, No makeup can cover up Donnie. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, well, no, we'll have to I, wait and see. I, 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 think, uh, I, th I think Donnie 1 might be, I think it might be too old for this kind of role anymore. I'm just going to, I think it's going to come off looking silly. I mean, um, so what's the breakdancing movie again? Um, Mismatched mis 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 couples? couples, yeah. Yeah, Mismatched Couples is like 20, 30 years ago, okay? Donnie at that age, he would pull off the Monkey King, but now he's 46. I don't think he's a he's a suitable person to play Monkey King. And two, I don't think a director like Soi Chang, who whose only action movie is uh, a movie called Dog Bite Dog. I mean, the category free, violent, gritty film. I don't think he's the right choice to take on this kind of role, uh, movie. Yeah, it does seem a little bit strange. I mean, if they really decided to go sort of an Avatar route and do the Monkey character as sort of a motion capture, I don't think. I don't think Donnie's age would really be a problem. I think he's still, I think he's still, you know, limber enough and, and, and spryly enough to do the moves required. Um, as to his overall outlook, yeah, I think it really depends on how they're going to approach it. Um, I'm assuming that if Chow Yun-Fat is going to be in it, he's going to be some kind, he's going to be one of the, the immortals, perhaps the, um, the Celestial Emperor or something. I'd be curious to see who Louis Ku takes up um, if he's sort of like one of the, I can't remember the name, but there are a couple like famous immortal gods that the monkey battles with before he's finally subdued in the story. So I'm assuming that would be one of the roles that, um, Louis Ku would probably take up. Maybe the bull king. I mean, I think it's dark enough. <laughs> no, I, I don't think they're going to go the, uh, the, I don't think they'll go the avatar route because, um, I don't think Chinese cinema just has the technology nor the money to take on that kind of that kind of uh, ambitious undertaking. I think it's going to be strictly almost like um, a Chinese tall story where there'll probably be a lot of effects, a lot of green screen. Um, hopefully, we won't look at the PlayStation Two game, at least PlayStation Three, please. Yeah. Um, we'll, we'll see. We'll see have. I, I personally, I don't have much faith in it. Um, yeah. So let's see. That's the thing. I mean. The the um, journey to the West is is really on you know par with big fantasy epics like you know um, Lord of the Rings um, or or an Avatar and you really need a, a a really big budget to sort of bring the vision to life and if you do it on the cheap it's going to just come off looking bad and I think there are countless examples of that I mean. Chinese tall story, I think, was interesting in terms of some of the characterizations, but the effects were just terrible in that, and, and it showed. And I think, you know, they sort of approached it from a tongue-in-cheek perspective. And I think without uh, Stephen Chow in, in, the Chinese, in the two Chinese odysseys, that probably wouldn't have worked as well. And I remember initially going into seeing the Stephen Chow films and coming out just hating them because I had gone in hoping that it was going to be sort of a somewhat serious, you know, take on the story. And over time, you know, when I got sort of got past the fact that, okay, this isn't really, 
you know, uh, Journey to the West as I, I know it and I, as I've read it, then they started to grow on me and, and you know, I, I really enjoy them now. But the, I remember watching it in the cinema the first time and I was just like, oh, uh, how, how could they have done this? But uh, I'll be looking forward to it. I, ho- I hope they I hope they do it well. All right, our next bit of news, um, more 3D news. It seems like a lot of the news we're going to be talking about is uh, related to 3D. Um, yeah, it looks like, we're, it looks like we have a triple D here today in the East Green section. Yeah. Uh, the film Battle Royale is getting a re-release. Is that correct, Kevin? That's right. Um, the Japanese um, Kill All the Teenagers You Want movie, Battle Royale, it's uh, returning in 3D, apparently. Um, I don't know why, but uh, Toei, the... The uh, studio that released the film um, will be producing this 3D version, um, put together by son, uh, Kenta Fukasaku, who was the screenwriter on the first film and took over um, the second film when his father died. Um, I don't know. I, I don't see... I'm afraid of another crap class for time, Paul. I don't know what you think. I mean, did, did you seen Battle Royale, right? Oh, yeah. Uh, it's, it's one of my favorite Japanese films. And I just... You know, we've talked about this already, so we really don't need to get that far into it. But why? I mean, it's not really necessary. I don't think that 3D is going to contribute to that film in any way, shape, or form. If if you've seen the film, it wasn't originally shot with 3D in mind. I mean, there are a couple scenes that I can reflect back on where people are, like, pointing weapons you know, directly at the camera or something, and then going on with a monologue or a, a quick kill scene. But there's nothing in that film that, that you know, speaks to the nature of, of 3D and, and what 3D should be doing as a technology. So I'm a little bit disappointed that they're doing this because I don't think it's going to really add anything to the film. It's a great film. It doesn't need 3D. Um, if they're just trying to milk the 3d trend i i, I don't know I, that kind of that kind of upsets upsets me a little bit yeah um it's it, all, of all films i don't know why they chose battle royale i mean there are plenty of more action-packed films with bigger budgets that could i guess use the free treatment and battle royale just isn't that kind of entertainment it's almost ironic that they're doing this because the whole point is that it's this game that is it's kind of making fun of the whole, you know, using murder as, yeah, it's it just kind of really strange. It's really strange, especially for this movie, because the way it's doing what it's using to the violence is using the violence to, to give visual pleasure, which is what the film actually isn't trying to do. Yeah. Or in fact, I think almost the opposite. Yeah. So very ironic that they're doing this. Yeah, I don't know. We'll have to see. Um, what the buzz is once once the film's released. It's only being released in Japan, if I read correctly. They don't really have plans to release this um, internationally. But it's... Yeah, you know, it, it only seems like it's... Yeah, it looks like it's only in, um, you know, in I, Japan. I really, and, I really don't see a lot of turnout for this. I mean, it's, it's, I mean, the film itself is very much sort of like a cult film, and I know there are a lot of people out there who really love it. But even if it was showing here, I don't think I'd rush out to watch it in 3D and, and pay 3D prices. I mean, I've already got the DVD. I can just throw the DVD in my machine. Um, I Yeah, it's just, it it's kind of baffling to me. Well, Japanese cinema has done a lot of baffling things, so this won't be the first. <laughs> yeah. 
All right, well, our third story for East Screen this week is also dealing with 3D, and that is the film studio Toho, better known for the Godzilla films, is scheduled to make uh, Umizaru 3, um, which is sometimes referred to in English as the... Um, oh, what's the English title, Kevin? Just slipped my mind. I think... Actually, I think the English title is Umizaru. Uh, uh, um, in the standard, what do they call it? In the standard, they refer to it as the Sea Monkeys. I don't, I don't know if that's the yeah. That's the that's the direct translation. It's uh, yeah. it's about deep sea deep sea divers. Um, and the second film was dubbed, uh, I believe, Umizaru uh, Limit of Love, or in the in the apps, Limits of Love. Mm. Um, so uh, this, yeah, this is a similarly baffling news. Um. Why one? Why they making a third movie? Even though the second movie was the highest grossing Japanese film that year, and three, why why are they making a rescue from 3D? Um, well, yeah, uh, I know it's a big big franchise. It's a huge. It's going to be a huge budget film, but I don't remember Japan actually doing that well in terms of 3D films. Um, certainly not as well as it did in Hong Kong. Uh, not as well as it did in America. Because I believe Japan has produced two, two films in 3D. Sadly, one of them is uh, the latest one in the Perfect Education series. Um, I don't know if you know about them, Paul. Uh, um, I know of them. Yeah. <laughs> I know we all know of them, but yeah. we never know them. Yes. Uh, and the other one is a horror film, I believe, uh, produced or directed by the director of Grudge. But those, those films haven't really made any mark in, in Japanese box office. Mm-hmm. Um, the only two two films that I know have sort of made dent in Japan is uh, are Avatar and I believe right now Alice in Wonderland. Mm-hmm. So it, it's a little bad to why Japan is also embracing this 3D thing so quickly because it's not like their movies are in trouble. It's, it's foreign films that are in trouble. Local films don't really need the help of 3D. Yeah. Um, but I think if anything, this 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 just another promotional gimmick. I think just for the franchise. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of back in the day of traditional 3D um i think it was jaws 3 came out and because it was the third film and and 3D was sort of making a comeback at that time and and this is the old 3D with you know the 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 red lens on the the right side and the green lens on the left side or maybe it was the reverse of that but the really uncomfortable cardboard glasses and there was a, there was a, there was some some point in the eighties, and there was a slight resurgence in the three D films. And I remember Jaws three. The big thing with this that it was the third film, and it was in three D. And if you've seen the film, it's a terrible film, and it's you know the three D did very little to enhance it. But back to Mizaru, I think that if you know if they shoot the film designed for three D with three D in mind, you know that's fine. I I don't have a problem. I think that's, you know, to me, that makes a lot more sense, would be a lot more attractive to me to go out into the cinema and and possibly see it than, say, the re-release of Battle Royale or, you know, the if even if they did it with something that, you know, I hold somewhat close to my heart, like an old Godzilla movie or something that wasn't originally intended for 3D uh, and they just kind of did it to do it, I, I don't think I'd be going out to the cinema to see it. Um, but have you seen the, the first two Umizaru films, Kevin? I've always seen bits and pieces of it, and they're, you know, handsomely produced films. And I, I don't know why they need this extra gimmick. I mean, the second film, like I just said, it's already, it was already the highest grossing film that year uh, in Japan. I mean, the highest grossing local film. It's, it's 
almost like some dimwit at a, at a board meeting when, um, um, so we're making a third movie. Well, why don't we uh, make it 3D so we can make an extra $25 million as opposed to the other $75 million we're making the second film? Was, was this a TV series also? Yes, it was. It started off as the film, and then it was made, it was continued a TV series, and then after the TV series ended, the second film came out, and, and actually it was quite a surprise because the, the ratings for the, for, for the TV series or end up and the and the gross for the first film didn't really we didn't really uh, expect didn't really um, uh, foreshadow how how big the second film was going to be. Mm. So so it the the fact that a second film got made was a surprise, and the fact that it was a hit is a bigger surprise. Um, so I think they should just sort of quit when they were ahead. Uh, but no, that they they went ahead with it, and um, you know you know I guess best of luck to them. Mm. It's a thing. Oh, have they? Keep our eyes peeled and see how it does when it finally hits the big screen. Let's move on to our East Screen film for this week, and that is the new Pang Ho Chung film, Dream Home. So, Kevin, uh, as I try and collect myself to prepare for talking about this, I'm going to let you give the synopsis for this and tell us some of your thoughts on it first. Oh, I feel a little giddy just thinking about this movie again. Um, Dream Home is the um, kind of controversial project by director Pang Ho Chung. He's, um, it's obviously his most violent yet. Uh, his most extreme film. Um, it's the first production effort by actress Josie Ho and her husband, um, Conroy Chan. And uh, the movie is ironically actually uh, invested, funded by um, real partly part-time real estate mogul Stanley Ho. So uh, this film, it's a slasher film. It's a, kind of a something that hasn't really happened in Hong Kong for a while, a slasher film. It's also a very violent slasher film. And... Um, it stars Jodie Ho as a woman who is trying to um, buy a home, as the title suggests. Um, her, she wants, she is um, aiming for this one building called Victoria Bay Number One, which is actually the Chinese title of the film. It's a seaside estate, and uh, her reason for buying it is um, something that leads back, traces back to her childhood. Um, she used to live where that building um, is now. And she's always, uh, it's always been a dream always been for her to buy back uh, a house at that, in that location. So, which is why she insists, one, on an on a ocean view and, um, and two, that very building. Now, if, if you live in Hong Kong, you would know that an apartment with an ocean view costs you, I believe, the opening text, I believe, says $6 million, Paul. Is that, is that yeah, right? Yeah, they, they had broken it down by square feet or something, but it's... It's pricey. Hong Kong is is considered some of the most expensive and overpriced in terms of market value housing uh, in the planet on the planet right now. Yes. Um, so that aspect we'll, we'll talk about a bit later. But so the film um, is essentially about Josie Ho's attempt to buy this house, and of course when she doesn't get it, she um, she goes postal uh, without the gun. 
Um, that's where the slasher part comes in. Um, uh, the apartment is quite a crazy idea, and actually, um, the film does kind of carry that craziness. I think, Paul, I see in your notes that you you didn't seem to buy buy this action. Um, but uh, I, I think even the film itself doesn't really buy what Josie does. She does something that's very extreme. She kills a pregnant woman. She kills security guards. She kills cops. She kills uh, drugged up drugged up uh, 20-something. She kills it, it, It's quite an extreme film. And uh, it, in a way, it doesn't really try and support what she does. It, it, it merely tries to portray why she went this crazy. But I think it doesn't really support what she does. Mm. Um, uh, it, it is very violent, um, but I think it, it's so over the top that it kind of goes to a darkly, really darkly comedic territory that uh, it's not really that hard to take after a while. Um, it also has a very interesting structure. Um, the way I told the story is, is kind of chronological, but actually the film uh, uh, cuts up the, the, the killing sequence, um, it shows you bit by bit every 10 minutes or so. It starts off with a very, very violent death, and then it goes back to the backstory, and it cuts back to the killing, and then it goes back to the backstory. Um, uh, part of me thinks that it's kind of done for a commercial audience, so they're not, because usually in the slasher, you take uh, your story, and they tell it for an hour, and then you set up the, the very long, extended killing sequence at the end, but, uh, but that, I think Hong or the board producer, uh, Josie, I'm not sure, uh, they know that it's going to be very tough on the audience to essentially sit through half an hour of this really extreme violence. So they, they, they very smartly put it in little bursts so that it's not too tough on the audience. But also at the same time, it kind of, it kind of puts them at an uneasy state because you keep going back to it. So when you, see, when you see the images again, you're ready. You're kind of getting ready for it, and it just kind of doesn't really stop until the very end. So in a way, it, it kind of puts the, it disturbs the audience, and yet it takes it easier on them, I think. And I think that's kind of smart. Um, yeah, what do you think? I, I'm kind of, it, it, for me, my, my thoughts are kind of scattered on this film. It's almost as scattered as the, the film structure. So if you could put, kind of put it back into perspective, Paul. Yeah. Well, um, yeah, it's... <laughs> it, I, <laughs> Uh, you have, you had a tough time. Did you have a tough time with the violence? I did. Uh, I did. Um, I, I don't. I. I don't really like v overly violent films to begin with. Uh, I think we've talked a little bit about this before. You know, for example, I, I loved the first Saw film because of the dynamic and and the way it was sort of done on the cheap, but it still told a very engaging story. But then the sequels, um, sort of got you just went over the top. Um. I couldn't sit through Hostel, and I I think that you know violence has a point, and I I know that there's there's violence in in things you know we could look at something like uh, Tokyo Gore Police for example, um, or some of the you know the cornball over the top violent films that come out of Japan. Um, but a film like this, you know, because I really liked the social commentary that was going on in this film. Um, I felt it's, it's, it's extremely relevant, especially, you know, with events that are going on right now. I mean, this was filmed, you know, uh, so, you know, sometime last year. Um, but, but, you know, this, this social issue with housing and things that are going on locally 
uh, has just continued to escalate. And, you know, it's always in the news here. And there are other issues that are, are touched upon here as well in, t in terms of things like insurance and, and medical coverage and how it's, you know, it's very difficult for a common person to really sort of get ahead when, you know, the, the average wage is not going up in terms with, with the cost of living. And things are just very unstable. Um, and I really loved the way that Fang Ho Chung sort of approached this subject and, and dealt with it. Um, and, and I think that he could have done just, just as compelling a story without all the gore um, that was there. I, I don't, you know, in some ways, I, I, as I watched this, I felt it was a lot like Lust Caution. And I came away with the same feeling after I came out of Lust Caution was that I really liked the narrative. I really liked the story they were trying to tell. But then at a certain point, um, I felt they went too far with the sexual aspect in that. And I think that I had the same feeling here. I felt that it was, the gore was, was overly used. In some cases, I don't know if he was just trying to get shock value out of it, or if he was, like you were saying, trying to be so over the top that it became comedic. Um, I was really reminded of his very first film, his very first short film, um, which I think he actually won um, the IFVA with, which was uh, called Summer Exercise. Which um, it, it, you can find it at, at some shops here in Hong Kong, and I it's yeah, I have a copy of it. And it's one of my one of my absolute favorite things that he's ever done, um, and it has that same kind of dark sense, and and it's a little bit gory, not nothing like this though, but in terms of some of the things that he does, you know, he approaches things that are typically considered sort of, you know, things that you don't do in these kinds of films, and so as you mentioned. Um, yeah, at one point, you know, he the 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 character here, um, as she's going postal, as you as you put it, um, she she attacks a pregnant woman, you know, and you know so there's sort of like this unspoken code or this unspoken rule that, you know, kids and pregnant women are usually you know usually they get away or usually they're they're saved or or, or they manage to escape somehow because they're considered not fair game um and he sort of bends these and he, he goes against these rules and and it makes it interesting um but i think that at a certain point he just went too far for my taste i mean again i'm not uh, somebody who really likes uh, a lot of gore a lot of blood a lot of violence and I, I know i have friends who love it and they would see something like this and they'd say yeah great more more um so it's really going to come down to you know how you as a as an audience member view that whether you can really get into that or not. Um, I was glad that in the beginning I was a little worried because the very first scene is, is very violent. Uh, the pregnant woman scene is very disturbing, very violent. But then as it got, it went on to around the second half, that one, the, the scene in the house, the long murder scene in the house, it just kind of went really, really over the top. The, yeah. the card and the card and the codics, uh, the, the guy with the intestines is trying to, uh, um, I guess it's a bit of spoiler. He's sitting there and he's, he's been he's been disemboweled, and then suddenly he picks up a joint and then he tries to smoke it. I mean that it, it's kind of hard to not. It's kind of hard to really take that seriously. Yeah. It's almost you can tell that 
Kang was having fun, either one, breaking those, those rules that you're talking about, killing off pregnant women and things like that, uh, or he's just having fun thinking up these ideas. And if you can kind of think on that level that you don't take it seriously, I think it's, it's, you can, it's kind of easier to, to handle before. Yeah. But I think the problem is that the other half of the film, which is the, the, the social commentary, the, the drama, is so serious that the two don't really quite gel together. Yeah, they, they, they have, they have, there's, there's definitely a, a problem with the mix. And, you know, you've got... I, I, I like what he did. I liked his approach in terms of telling the story. So you start off with this event that is happening, you know, for a few hours over the course of an evening, and then you break that event up. You know, and you show a little bit of that event, and then you go back in time and reveal some of the story. And, you know, through the course, you start to put this together, sort of like piecing together a puzzle. And I think he was very successful in doing that. Um, and you, you sort of get to see some of the other people, you know, the father, the grandfather, um, the, you know, she, she's got a, a boyfriend who's actually married, uh, played by Eason. Um I thought that structure hurt the film actually because you if it went you almost you almost deconstruct the film in your mind and put it back into chronological order and you would I think you feel for the character more that way. Well, no, see, I I disagree because for me it was like the the killings basically served as like chapter markers in a sense, you know it, uh, it, they they uh, sort of became like bookends on these these histories. Um, but then it's at a certain point, like you were saying, that 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 sort of extended scene um, in in the you know the the, the young party the, house. the young party house, yeah, um, that just went on for way too long, um, and that's you know that's towards the the end, and that's sort of you know the the the, the climax of the killings for that even for that evening. Um, so perhaps they thought they needed to spend more time there, but the you know it's it. You know, Josie Ho was great. I mean, the the acting the acting was was top notch. I I can't fault the actors um, here. The, the the special effects. I mean, even though I didn't like the gore, were incredible. Um, some really amazing combinations between real effects and some some CG use. Um, so yeah, that was very well done. And you know, Josie Josie Ho herself, as you were mentioning. Um, a very interesting choice for this role because she's playing this person who, you know, this sort of very um, lower income person who just can't get ahead. She works two or three jobs and she's just got this singular goal. And no matter what she does within the system, you know, the system that's supposed to work for her, she just can't get ahead. She can't, you know, having a home is, you know, this home that she wants is just out of reach for her. And, at the same time, you know, if you know a little bit about her, you know her. She's the daughter of Stanley Ho, the the tycoon here in Hong Kong, who, you know, has lots of properties and has made you know billions of dollars through the sale of properties. So it's an it was a very interesting choice, and and I think she did a did a superb job in her role. Um, and Pang Ho Chung, I think you know, if you like his films, he bar. I recognized a lot of elements that he had used in earlier films, dating all the way back to um, you, you shoot, you shoot, I shoot, um, and some of the cinematography. Um, there's some really nice focus on just Hong Kong buildings, um, and oh yeah, and, those shots there are marvelous. Yeah, yeah and it just 
that that kind of stuff was what really drew me into the film but then sort of you know you had these scenes of the gore and you know i'm covering my eyes at some parts and i'm just like okay come on let's get past this and and get back to the story um and yeah i, I think there's a film that'll be served better if you know what to expect if you know what to expect then you kind of you kind of watch it on a different at a different layer well you know it's, you yeah it's, i i think it. you know it's and it, it depends on on what you like too i mean i remember we were talking with Ross last week and he had said a similar thing. He had, when he had watched it at Udine, he had sort of psyched himself up uh, before seeing it. And then when he, when he actually saw it, it turned out to be, you know, um, you know, less than what his expectations had, had, had held. Um, so he was a little bit uh, disappointed. And I know we, we were him, we were all ribbing you yesterday before you went and watched it. Um, so you were probably, you know, had, had visions of terrible things going through your mind. So probably a bit of a letdown for you. Um, but for me, it was just too much. I, I could have done with less. And, and the one we saw here in Hong Kong was, was even that was edited down um, to some extent. But the other big issue I think I had with the film, if, if I really had to sort of deconstruct it and, and find a, a, a problem beyond the gore, is that the characters that we ha that that are being targeted by the killer? Um, they're all bad, you know. It's like they're all sort of these negative stereotypes, and I was just thinking that's it, it was kind of a sort of a a convenient way that okay these people, um, you know. So you've got um the the lazy security guard who's asleep at the beginning okay he's not really a bad guy but he's not doing his job um you've got this sort of uh how, how cheating the cheating husband well you've got the che this cheating husband this cheating mainland husband rich tycoon guy well he's not a tycoon but he can afford a place there and he can he's got a mistress somewhere in the mainland and his wife is sort of this typical Thai Thai. um and then you know they've got a, uh, you know a, a domestic Maid. helper, you know. Okay, a domestic helper and a pregnant woman are not really well. Okay, one is, is kind of the the the, the slasher cliche, yeah. you know, like if you're if you're having premarital sex, premarital sex, then you must die under the slasher rules, yeah. things like that. Or yeah, things like that. I mean, so it follows that rule very well. And two, I don't think all of the characters certainly deserve to die. Well, it's um, not. I, I don't think it's necessarily a case of deserving, but. I got the bad, sense bad that you know, as as I was watching, like the, the 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 pregnant wife, you know, her attitude, the way she was kind of talking, you know, it's like you're not really sympathetic with her. Um, you're definitely not sympathetic with the husband, and then the characters that that you know she goes into with the, at the end. I wasn't sympathetic for any of them. In fact, you know, some of the people I was watching with were were actually laughing when those characters were were sort of getting it, you know, and. And I guess that's, you know, that's true. That, that holds true. You go back and look at like the Friday the 13th movies and or the Nightmare on Elm Streets. And it's usually there are a lot of jerky characters and they all sort of get their comeuppance. But usually there's this one, you know, sort of uh, naive or innocent character who somehow makes it through. Um, this time is the killer. Oh, sorry. <laughs> well, yeah, to, to an extent. And, you know, as a killer... You know the, the the character is a bit um, 
um, how to how to say you know it's not very good. <laughs> well, here's the thing: it's 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 kind of a plot hole, I suppose. Um, several plot holes actually. One, the first plot hole is how did this woman who who won this this regular phone cold caller or slash retail woman how did she come up with such creative kills? Like, okay, if I would just kill all these people in the building, I would just you know take a knife or take whatever weapon she had, the hammer, and just smash them all to yeah. death. Well, it was. But, Obviously, Pang won't have a little fun, and suddenly kept, comes up all these really creative kills. That's sort of just out of the character. Well, see, the thing is, is, is that the kills were creative, but it was like they were clumsy. It's like I think the the the, the only person she really I and mean, she only killed like two of them uh, directly, and the rest were like you know wrestling matches and and falling down and you know um, just it was just really yeah. I mean, I yeah I. I didn't expect to see like Michael Myers or something in, in terms of, you know, cause I think Ross had said it. He said, this is sort of a, like a, an exposition on how, how someone would become, you know, sort of the becoming of a serial killer. You wouldn't be good at it at first. You know, you, you perhaps you'd be, you know, clumsy, but it, it's just seemed like she just kind of lucked out throughout the course of the evening. One too many times, you know, she just kept getting lucky um, and she just, you know, manages to make it through, you know, from one kill to the next to the next. Um, well, would you rather that she, she really does, does expertly go through all these people? That, well, no, I, I, I mean, I, I wasn't looking for, you know, I didn't, I wasn't expecting her to be, you know, the super ninja assassin two or something like that. Um, but it was just, I don't know, maybe it was, it, it was, it wasn't what I was really expecting to see. And at, at a couple times, I just kind of felt, oh, she's kind of, you know, she's really, really lucky, <laughs> you know, the, the way events sort of play out. And perhaps they were doing this, like you were saying, to try and generate some humor with it to make it not seem quite so dark. Um, because some of the, you know, some of the kills that are actually involved are, are rather dark in, in, in scope. Um, but, you know, it's... I'm I'm really mixed on the film because there are parts of it that I just love and there are parts of it that I just wish weren't there. Um, I don't know what do you would you what would you think, Kevin? Would you would this be a recommendation to friends and to relatives? I think I will only recommend to them if they if they really if, you, if they know what they're expecting. They know if they know what the worst things that would happen in the film, so that they don't have to fear for the worst, and they can sort of take it take it as it is and take it as a director trying to have fun in a very, very perverted way, I would recommend it. But if you're not into these sort of films, uh, you might not have the stomach for this film, then I definitely won't try to, try to, try to brave yourself. What price happiness? Who can truthfully say? But for every share, with tears we pay. Love is happiness, I've had happiness. Ah, but it ended one day. Now I look at life a different way. When skies are cloudy and gray. They're only gray for a day 
So wrap your troubles in dreams And dream your troubles away Until that sunshine peeps through There's only one thing to do Wrap your troubles in dreams And dream your troubles away Castles may tumble That's fate after all Life's really funny that way No use to grumble Smile as they fall Weren't you king For a day All right, let's talk about some West Screen news now. Um, Not much in this department this week, but one bit of uh, news that caught my eye as I was uh, browsing along the web, and that is Disney is is attempting to produce a new 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, which they had originally done with, um, I think it was Kirk Douglas, back in the day, and I remember growing up watching that film, and it was a it was a pretty big film for my childhood, and being growing up in Florida, um, where we would go to Disney every year, and at the time at that time they used to have a Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea ride that you could go on. That's since been closed, and it, I think it's been replaced with uh, I think it's Ariel's Little Mermaid Cove or something. And I, I kind of really miss that ride because it was it was sort of science fictiony, and you know it's based on H.G. Wells and um, always had sort of a special place in, you know, for me in, in my childhood. And I go back from time to time and I watch the, the, the DVD of the old Disney movie. Um, they so, have the ride Japan, Paul. Oh, do they? Yeah. Uh, Disney C actually appropriately. Yeah. I've been on the ride. Oh, that may, uh, I may have to get over to Japan just, to just to check that out. Um, so yeah, they're planning to do they're planning to do a remake of this. They've tapped uh, director David Fincher to work on this, and they've brought in, I think, one of the writers um, from the Bourne Ultimatum. And Fincher is better known for films like Fight Club and Seven, and I think uh, Benjamin Button and some other things. So this is kind of a a little bit of a shift for him in terms of the types of films that he works on. Um, you know, because Disney, obviously, if this is going to be released under the Disney label, it's going to be somewhat family-friendly. I don't think we'll be expecting to, you know, to see an ending like uh, Seven, for example. <laughs> um, that'd be a bit shocking. What's um, in the box? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what have you done, Captain Nemo? Um, <laughs> But yeah, so I'm kind of excited about this, and I, you know, as I as I started to look up um, David Fincher over on IMDb, they didn't have this listed out. So this is a pretty recent deal, I guess, and I'm not sure how quickly this will be uh, undergoing because I think his his current film in pre production is um, the the girl with the dragon tattoo, and he's also listed on IMDb. Um, a, sort of a, uh, as a future project, um, the Black Hole, which is another Disney remake that I've been hearing things about, which I'd also be very, very excited to see it because that was one of my another favorite of mine growing up. Um, I'd really like to see how they approach a remake for that film as well. Um, but interestingly, uh, Fox is also 
ha having a project of, of 20,000 Leagues project in the works. And it looks like there may be a little bit of competition between the two studios to try and um, see who gets their project out first and what will happen to the other project. Um, this kind of thing sort of goes on more more often than we than we realize but i don't know what do you think about this kevin do you think uh, this could be a problem they're very both choices um in terms of director i mean david fincher is uh never has never done a family film uh even benjamin button actually think about it even though it's pg-13 it's quite grim film and uh Timur, the russian director for the fox project um Timur the top. Uh, I'm sorry. Uh, he he's, he hasn't directed one family-friendly film either. I mean, he did the Baywatch film, the Night Watch, and also Wanted. All three of these films are original and almost um, quite extreme in terms of style. Yeah. So it, it's almost like this, like rehab for R-rated directors. Yeah. Like, come well, make a family film. We'll let you have twenty thousand these under sea. And as I read through the article, um, the, this first article, they were saying that originally. They had uh, Mick G as um, sort of in charge of of the project, and that kind of got pushed aside. Um, so, if you know who Mick G is, he, I think primarily he'd be known internationally for the Charlie's Angels films, and he does the supernatural uh, TV series over on the is it the CW or the WB? Um, he also did a Terminator. Salvation. Yeah, he did. He did. He determined her salvation. So, um, you know, I, 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 you know, I like McGee sometimes, but sometimes I don't. Uh, I'm kind of glad that he didn't get this project because uh, I'm not sure he's the right person for it. But then again, maybe I'm just too nostalgic for that, you know, for that childhood uh, sensibility that that I seem to recall. But uh, yeah, I. I I'm kind of partial to the Disney version of it more so than the Fox as I think about these two. I'm, you know, I maybe again because of that same sense of nostalgia, you know, growing up with it and and having the Disney ride. Um I think I'm looking forward to the Disney version a little bit more. Um but perhaps I'm a little bit too biased, I don't know. Either way, um I definitely know one thing is that it will have a lot of special events. Yeah, you think so? It won't just be a, like a guy with a, you know, a canoe turned over and going underwater. They shoot it in the ride. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they'll just get, they'll just break out the old mechanics from the old ride that they've got like mothballed somewhere <laughs> in some storage <laughs> warehouse. They'll so they'll get some of the Disney Imagineers and like, all right, guys, clean this up. <laughs> let, let, let's get some of those broken down Pirates of the Caribbean robots as well. <clears throat> yeah, they're sort of going backwards with filmmaking. Nicely low tech.
let's move on to talk about our West screen film for this week. And that is the new Ridley Scott film, Robin Hood. Um, so Robin Hood tells the story of a archer working in the service, the army of Richard the Lionhearted, also known as uh, Richard the First. And his name is Robin Longstride. Um, and he is just a simple sort of common soldier. Um, and also uh, sort of at the beginning of the st story where introduced to another character named Robert Loxley, who's sort of the right-hand man of, of King Richard. And the movie sort of takes place during the, the after the Crusades, um, during a time when Richard was sort of sacking castles in France to sort of refurbish and refill the coffers back home in England because uh, the, the extended Crusade War had really drained a lot of the wealth out of England. And so he had taken to sort of pillar, pillaging and plundering um, in an effort to win back some riches and be able to pay for his armies and, and for his exploits. Um, and so at a certain point, um, the, the king is struck down, and Robin Longstride, um, who in a, in, in a, had been imprisoned by the king for a moment of uh, honesty. Uh, he, he and some fellow archers decide to make a run for it and to return back to England. And during this time, there's some political intrigue going on with the uh, Prince John, uh, who is Richard's brother, uh, who's trying to get a little bit more power at home. And he's worked out a deal with the king of France, uh, Philip, I believe, who... They want to see Richard um, sort of put out of the way. Philip, the king of France, thinks that this will weaken England and make it that much easier for the taking. Um, and John sees it as an opportunity for himself to uh, take control of the throne. And so there, you've got a lot of political intrigue going on. And basically, Robert Loxley, who is the king's right-hand man, he's charged with returning the king's um, crown back to England. But on the way back, he gets struck down, and Robin Longstride and his fellow uh, band of archers who have sort of fled uh, from the siege that they were at, uh, they stumble across um, the fallen Robert Loxley, and he entr entrusts um, Robin with his family sword, and he asks, his, through his dying wish, he asks Robin to return it um, to his family estate and his father who are living in the domain of Nottingham. So that sort of sets the precedent, uh, the, 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 sets the stage for the story. And that's like after an hour into it. Um, and then you've got another hour of Robin uh, going to Nottingham and presenting the sword back to um, Lord Loxley, who then asks Robin to stay on and take up the role uh, and pretend to be his son, Robert. And so if you know anything about Robin Hood lore, um, in some of the retellings, he's called uh, Robin of Loxley, and he was, you know, there, there are connections to the Loxley name. And so this is sort of Ridley Scott's take on this. And <clears throat> so Russell Crowe is taking on this role as Robin Longstride, and we've got Kate Blanchett as Maid Marian. 
um, Max von Sydow uh, as as Lord Loxley, and a whole cast of other British actors, with the exception of uh, William Hurt, who somehow gets thrown in here uh, for good measure and does his best British accent. Um, I so I went into this film very excited. I really like Robin Hood, and I really like medieval history, and I thought, okay, here's a film. Ridley Scott, um, he did a great job with Gladiator. Um, you know, I love, I've loved a lot of his earlier movies, loved Blade Runner. So I thought he's going to do a good job. He's going to be the director who's going to get rid of the bad taste that was left in my mouth with the Kevin Costner Robin Hood movie. Um, and so this was going to be sort of a, uh, a revalidation of Robin Hood in terms of film for me. And nothing's going to beat Mel Brooks, Robin Hood, Men in Tights. Well, yeah, if you want to laugh, you've got to watch Robin Hood, Men in Tights. But I mean, up to this point, if I was going to recommend Robin Hood to anybody, I'd still recommend Errol Flynn, or I'd recommend some of the BBC television series, such as uh, Robin of Sherwood, and, and some of those uh, those initial series. The, those Those are a little bit mystical and deal with like Druidism and things, but they were really, really good. This is sort of the antithesis of that. This is trying to be a very sort of accurate medieval retelling. Um, but unfortunately, it just doesn't feel like Robin Hood. Um, the film is not gladiator in terms of spectacle, in terms of performance, but it really, it really wants to be. And I think that a lot of people probably seeing the trailer and seeing Russell Crowe in the role are expecting that, you know, that's what they'll get. Um, but it's really kind of long and dull um, to basically just sort of put it into perspective. It's a two-and-a-half-hour movie, and um, it's not really about Robin Hood. Um, it's, not, it's not what you would expect from Robin Hood. Uh, the best way that I can explain this is if Christopher Nolan were directing this film. Uh, do you know what it would be called, Kevin? Dark Hood? Yeah, no, but you're close. It would, if Chris Nolan had directed this film, he would call it Robin Hood Begins, um, because that's what this Damn is. It. This is the this is sort of like an origin story of Robin Hood before he became Robin Hood. So the whole film is sort of building up of this idea of how this person, this this Robin Longstride, um, actually becomes Robin Hood. But he never really spends time as Robin Hood, which is kind of what you would expect to see um, in a movie called Robin Hood. Um, but that being said, I mean, the, the performances here are very strong. I think Russell Crowe, um, he, he brings a he brought a certain dignity, although it was very downplayed um, to, to the role. Um, Maid Marian, um, she's OK. Uh, Kate Blanchett, she she has a very sort of strong will, and that sort of shines through. She has an Aowen moment towards the end of the film, which just sort of comes out of nowhere. So for those people who recall from um, the character Aowen from Lord of the Rings, um, she has a, a very significant moment in the th third book, the third film, and Maid Marian sort of has a very similar moment here that just it, it kind of just kind of seems out of place and the director takes some historical poetic license if you're a history buff 
and you sort of know, have read up on some of the things that actually happened to Richard, um, the way he died, um, the way that, you know, his fam he dealt with his family and some of these things. Um, there's a lot of poetic license taken with that. So this is definitely not a sort of historic retelling. They do sort of play with some of the actual events as they happened, but um, it's, 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 very, it's very much an offshoot of history. The film just seems too long. Um, it takes a long time to sort of get to the meat and potatoes of what's actually happening, um, which is sort of this in, invasion by, um, by French forces um, being sort of led by this covert operative. And ultimately, the, their, you know, Robin has to rally the lords and the dukes and, and Prince John to try and stave them off in a climactic battle that happens on this, this beach near Nottingham or I don't remember if it was near Nottingham or another province, but it's it's basically a medieval version of the opening uh, Normandy beach invasion of saving, saving Private Ryan. So instead of machine gun nests, you've got archers, you know, up on these cliffs and, and hails of arrows raining down on soldiers jumping off these landing boats and, um, you know, getting hit by arrows and then falling in the water and drowning is very much that imagery that you would have seen in Saving Private Ryan, just done in sort of the medieval context. Um, so as a story, and, and unfortunately, that, that battle, it just, it wasn't very climactic. Um, and this is, this is a movie, again, you think Robin Hood, you think of um, archery, you think of, you know, the, 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 the famous double tap, you know, that, that sort of, I guess, I don't know if he invented it, but, you know, where he shoots an arrow and then splits the arrow um, with a second arrow, that kind of idea. You, you, you don't get a lot of focus on archery here in this film. Um, there, there are basically one or two scenes with the character using a bow, and that's about it. Um, but in terms of a final verdict, I would say that if, if you're somebody who likes the medieval period, this is a really good story. Um, you know, it's very beautifully shot. The attention to detail. It's a Red Ridley Scott film, so there's great attention to detail. Um, the costuming looks great. The colors, the scenery, it all looks very great, very authentic. So if you really like the medieval feel, the medieval look of things, um, this, is a good, this is a great movie to sit there and go and see. If you're looking just for sort of Errol Flynnish type of action... Lots of swordplay, lots of archery. That's not really here. You're not going to get that. Um, and if you're really looking for something that feels like Robin Hood, that's not really here either. So um, you, this would be something you'd, you'd maybe want to wait for video to, to try and catch. Um, but yeah, it's, it was, I was a bit disappointed, unfortunately. Uh, oh, I'm a big fan of Ridley Scott, and, and I, I thought Kingdom of Heaven director's cut was excellent, and I, I like Gladiator, obviously. So um, maybe Ridley Scott should really start working with, with uh, Russell Crowe. I almost said like Cameron Crowe. Uh, Russell Crowe. I mean, I'm sure they're best buddies, and, and Russell Crowe is a great actor, but this is, what, their fifth movie together? Their sixth movie together? Yeah, they've done quite a few together, and I, I, I think I was reading up over one review... They, some people were saying, like, Crow is too old to be Robin Hood. 
um, at least so for this to sort of be like a Robin Hood Begins or a prequel. Um, he was just sort of too old. And they compared it, they said a much better film to show an aging Robin Hood and his relationship with Marion would have been um, Robin and Marion, which starred an older Sean Connery. And it was sort of, it's a, it's a film about the declining days of Robin Hood. And um, it, it was, it was really well done. This is, I, 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 I'm very critical of this film, I guess, because I went in with a certain expectation that wasn't met. But it's a it's it's a very nice medieval film. <laughs> if you're just going to see sort of a medieval film, if you like films like, you know, Lion in Winter or those types of, you know, very dramatic and lots of dialogue and lots of talking about things and some political intrigue, more so than the the, the Errol Flynn style where it's lots of swashbuckling and and, you know, um, people posing and posturing with swords and making proclamations and that kind of thing. That's not really what this film is. Um, best character of the film, though, for me, which still holds true for some of the older versions as well, is uh, Friar Tuck. Um, the guy, you know, is very much a very stereotypical Friar Tuck, as you might imagine, but he was sort of the comic relief, and um, I really liked the guy, the actor that they had playing uh, that role and sort of their take uh, on him but yeah i would say definitely if you if you if you like medieval stuff uh, this would be a film to see if not you might want to wait for video you're listening to the east screen west screen podcast visit concast.com for more All right, uh, before we go, we got some comments from our episode last week that we thought we'd take some time to talk about. Um, comment from David Harris, who wrote in talking about um, one of the news articles we talked about last week with regard to um, piracy and, and uh, some of the controls coming up through the TV and movie industry in terms of controlling some of the technology. And uh, David Harris says... I'm very much of the belief that genuine fans of, in our case, Asian cinema, but substitute any kind of entertainment for that, and the argument is the same, uh, put their hands in their pocket to show their support, as do I. Uh, that said, with the TV movie industry seemingly following a similar path to the music industry when it comes to dealing with the internet age and advancing technologies, I can't feel much sympathy for them when the paying public responds to their attempts to limit, um, <clears throat> to limit what we can see, when we can see it, where we can, and where we can see it, with a resounding no. Um, so yeah, he he's he's kind of of the same mind that I am with this. Um, in that, you know, I'm very much an advocate of going out and buying legitimate copies of stuff, provided I have access. Um, and as we said last week. If I don't have access, then I start to look at other ways of getting access to the content. Um, and I think I remember you were saying last week a similar thing that, you know, a lot of times there's a movie you want that uh, is just not in release anymore, except you can find it in some of these shops. They have like an old VHS copy that had been uh, transferred over or something. Um, and he goes on to say that piracy is a very real issue. Um, but how much film companies lose is an inexact science. 
And I think he makes a good point with that. I mean, uh, what do you think, Kevin? Uh, I think um, the, 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 the figures that studio always give about, oh, I lost that much money because of piracy, I think it's, it's never a really realistic figure. I mean, the, 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 the industry is obviously trying to set themselves sort of victim to this, but in a way, it's also kind of their own undoing. I mean, they... They, they always care about the profit margin, as, as they should. I mean, they are corporations, but the the way that they're trying to to secure that income, secure that profit, is not beneficial to the to the paying public. And when you get to that point, I wouldn't say they deserve it, but you can sort of understand why some people would want to go against that. Yeah, yeah. I think I think you know the the thing for me is my my dad was always big into VHS. And when VHS was sort of an up-and-coming industry, he'd go out and he'd buy movies, and he'd try and wait for movies to go on sale or get used movies. But he had this—he had a, eventually had a huge collection of VHS, and then DVDs came out, and he started, you know, giving away or selling off or or trading off some of his VHS tapes. Um, but in the early days of VHS, they had this macro vision, uh, it was sort of a copy protection, where if you tried to copy. Um, a VHS that had Macrovision encoded on it, the copy that you would get would have this sort of flickering contrast between bright, really bright, and dark. And it would be very annoying and would kind of make the copy unwatchable. And well, that then, happened before. Yeah. And, but then, you know, you could get these filter boxes, which would sort of remove that effect so that you would then send the signal through this filter box and then you would copy from the filter box and you'd get you know a second generation copy that was watchable um and you know this this kind of thing is is has always been around in in terms of piracy and and ways around it and the new technologies come up and then more ways you know sort of spring up to address those technologies and it just seems like the more that the the big companies try and you know, put the hammer down, it just really starts to annoy and aggravate fans and maybe drives them away from from actually purchasing product. And then at the same time, it instills other people to go and find workarounds to to some of these situations. Um, but I don't know. I, like, I don't... Like, like Ross said last week, I mean, I never really got the mentality of putting on films for people to share with people. I never got why anyone would do that. If if somebody does care about the work, they would encourage people to buy legitimate versions. Yeah. But, um, but I, I think you've got the point. I think you're right that the more the companies try to challenge us with these protection, the more people are going to do trying to get around it. Just like even with the iPhone right now, the Wi-Fi, the Wi-Fi syncing thing. Yeah. Well, um, Apple is being really protective of their software, their apps, so people just just go and jailbreak the software, their OS, or and and try and get the features they want and they they need. Yeah. All right, that's going to about do it for this week. Um, if you'd like to keep up with us uh, here at the show, um, you can always find us on the show website at www.concast.com. And we're happy if you like to leave questions or comments or if you'd like to send in a question with an audio file. Um, you're, you're welcome to do so, and we'll try and talk about that here on the show if we can. 
Um, Kevin, if people would like to follow along with you, they can find you over on Twitter. Um, how can they get in touch with you there? Um, you can just search uh, in the search bar to Golden Rock or uh, in the URL is www.twitter.com slash the golden rock in one word. That's the golden rock. Um, also, of course, uh, I sometimes review films for lovelishkfilm.com. Um, I will be back with some reviews uh, soon, I hope, in the near future. Also, you can catch my work in the Yumcha section uh, of yesasia.com. I'm writing under there in the nickname of Rockman. All right. And speaking of reviews, um, if you like the show or if there are things you'd like to see changed or improved upon, um, you can always leave us a comment on the site or you can head over to iTunes. Um, we look forward to any reviews you could leave for us there that... Uh, from what I'm told, if we get some favorable reviews through iTunes, that it sort of helps us get more notice um, through through the site and can generate some more traffic our way. But if you do have things that you'd like to see, possible segments or different approaches to some of the segments that we currently have, um, we'd be welcoming any feedback that you'd be willing to leave. As long as it's not about getting rid of us. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Um, next time, we'll be looking to talk about new Hong Kong film uh, with Ikan Cheng and Jordan Chan sort of facing off in a, in a gangster-related uh, comedy. At least I, I think it looks like a comedy um, based on the trailer. Do you know, is that a comedy or is, that a, is it a drama or is it somewhere well, in between? Definitely a comedy. Definitely a comedy. Once a gangster is supposed to be a comedy that will sort of undo the 90s gangster genre. So mm. I'm, I'm quite looking forward to it. All right. So that'll be for next time. So until then, we will wish you good viewing, and we will see you then. See you next week, everybody.